Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Today's guest, returning guest, Jan Fran, my co-host on Question Everything. We recorded this chat about a month ago, so both Jan and I knew that Question Everything had been renewed, recommissioned by the ABC for a new series next year, which is very exciting. We'd love to thank everybody who watched the show. You can still find it on ABC iView if you want to check out this season. And we're very excited about the idea that in 2022, we will actually get to do the show with comedians from all over the country and hopefully in front of a big uh, live studio audience as well. That's what we're hoping for anyway. Fingers crossed. Variants pending, much like everything, including my stand-up tour. I am going to do a brand new stand-up tour next year, or at least my hope and aim is to do a brand new stand-up tour next year. I am currently thinking about what that show will be it will be called willogical and it will go on sale in the new year when we work out you know which states we can go to and how we can travel across borders and how we can lock things in and you know you you all understand you know the world that we currently live in but the good news is that question everything with jan fran will be back in 2022 uh, something that is not really talked about in this episode because obviously we weren't able to reveal it at the time because the abc hadn't done their upfronts yet uh, great chat with Jan, as usual. Uh, we we really get into it on a whole bunch of topics. It's really fun. Uh, really, really enjoy this chat with Jan. Like I enjoy every chat that I have with the amazing Jan Fran. Check her out on all her socials, all her links, all her podcasts, all the work that she does online, her videos. I just couldn't be a bigger Jan Fran fan. So I hope you enjoy this episode with her today. Huge thank you, as always, to Podcast Mike for doing all the behind the scenes work on getting these podcasts out. And to James Fosdyke, who does all the brilliant and original artwork. You can find all the artwork that James does for all our podcasts at tofop.com, where you can find Tofop, which is a podcast I have been doing weekly with my friend Charlie Clawson for the last 11 or 12 years. I am having a little break from that podcast for the rest of the year, but Charlie is doing it with some people connected to the Tofop universe. So Podcast Mike will be on an episode, James Fosdyke will be on an episode, and the brilliant John Deeks, who does all our introductions for us and it appears at our live shows, he will be on one of the episodes as well, I believe, that is being planned. And Fofop, which is the spin-off podcast that Charlie and I ordinarily alternate hosting. Charlie is doing all the heavy lifting until the end of the year. Then we're going to have a break from all the podcasts over the summer, except for Two Guys, One Cup. Uh, our AFL adjacent podcast, which is having a little summer series where Charlie and Scott Dooley are doing a show called The Footy Fixes. So if you are interested in AFL football or AFL adjacent conversations, you can still get that at Two Guys, One Cup and AFL podcast. Uh, but in January, we will be having some time off TOFOP, FOFOP and Willosophy, a big break. And then we will back in the final week of January with all the shows in 2022 for a brand new launch. In the meantime, though... I've got a backlog of episodes of Willosophy, so you're going to be getting uh, two a week, mostly two a week, up until Christmas. And of course, you can go to patreon.com slash Willosophy if you like the show and you want to support it and you want to make sure that Podcast Mike and James Fosdyke uh, get paid for the amazing work that they do. The best place to go to help us do that is patreon.com slash Willosophy. Uh, enjoy today's episode with Jan Fram. <laughs> Hello. 
Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Did not entirely say my name correctly there, which is a bad start. A bit of a stumble at the start, not even being able to say my own name. But it is Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. It is a return guest today. This is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Uh, I'm your co-host on Question Everything. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. I'm very aware of who you are. Sorry, you haven't worked with me for six weeks. Have you forgotten? Who the fuck are you? Have we met? You're not Russell or Todd. I don't know what's going on. I've moved on, baby. Far out, man. Brutal. Uh, Yeah, who am I? I'm I'm, I'm that person. I'm the co-host of the the show Question Everything on the ABC um, and also journalist and writer and person. Jan Fran. Jan Fran. This is what I've learned about you. I've learned a lot about oh, you. I'm like going to all the things that I've learned about you. <laughs> but is this what this one is? One of the is things. What, it's like, here is a list of all the shit I have come to know in the last four months. None of it good. Let's start. Number one. Nah, that's question everything like season eight. <laughs> You know, big fallout, like bad blood, starts getting real passive aggressive. Oh. <laughs> yeah, what do you learn? Uh, uh, I've always been a Jan Fran, very separate pronunciation of your name. Like you are Jan Fran, but you are not really Jan Fran, as I've come to know. You are Jan yeah. Fran. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone says that. They're like, are you, are you, Jan, are you Jan Fran or... I just feel like I'm compelled to say Jan Fran, and I'm like, yeah, it's just it come, it's one word, babe. It's Jan yeah. Fran. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I see. This is this. See, I see you in a whole new light just because of that. Better, better or worse? Does that work better for you, Jan Fran, rather than Jan Fran? Yeah, it does heaps better. Actually, like it's weird that I have such a strong take on it. Now that I know I have options, I really prefer one more Why? than the other. And it, I don't know. <laughs> like a psychologist could have a field day over an hour and a half working out why it is. But I think there's something stop start about Jan Fran where I feel like I, I've almost said it wrong. Whereas like Jan Fran, it feels like Madonna or Kylie. Like yeah. it's just like that's – and that's how I think of you now. You're like a one-name person to me. That's what you are. You're Jan Fran. I can't say Jan. No, well, Jan could be anyone. I mean, yeah. yeah. That's right. I love that – I love you've likened it to Madonna or Kylie because it's mm. like we're manifesting, baby. Or Warnie. Does that well. count then? Does that make it better or worse? Let's stick to the first two, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've seen this. On the day we're recording this, uh, there's a television show on TV at the moment called uh, Celebrity Big Brother, which... uh, uh, is is n- not good, uh, and the celebrities are not celebrities. But it turns out that there was a conversation last night where one of the celebrities uh, announced that she got a whole bunch of like explicit DMs from Shane Warne, Warney. and then in what I thought was actually a bit of a magic bit of television, two other of the housemates oh revealed the same thing had happened no. to them. <laughs> he's at he's still at it, that guy. <laughs> I mean. You got to admire his commitment because no one has like more famously got in trouble other than Anthony Weiner for explicit text messages. Like literally, almost destroyed his sporting career, destroyed his like family and his marriage, and he's just like, oh well, I guess, I guess the worst that could have happened has already happened. I still like just sliding into people's DMs. I'm just like, aren't you tired, Warney? 
like aren't don't don't Obviously you get not. to a point where you're like, man, I've had a great time. I've done all these things. I've played right. cricket. I've slid into DMs. I'm just gonna chill out now. You know? Is it? Because I would have thought he more than anybody should retire those fingers. I mean, those oh. fingers have done so much work, like on the cricket field. <laughs> like you know, I mean, this is. You know, one of the most famous wrists in sporting history, only equal to Tom Brady, I imagine. So this is, wouldn't you think that you just take it home and treat it nice? But instead, he is on like Twitter all day long. Maybe it's just muscle memory. Can we just like... Maybe you just can't help please it. Please don't ever use the term retire those fingers. Or talk about Warney's wrist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, can we not, I mean, can we not talk about Shane Warne's fingers and how much action they've had on or off the cricket pitch? Yeah, you know what it was? I didn't even mean it that way, but as soon as I was in it, I was like, yeah, okay, this just went there naturally. I'm so sorry. No. Nah. <laughs> like Warney sliding into a DM, <laughs> I slid into that. So uh, since Question Everything finished uh, like a, a month or so ago, um, uh, what's been going on in your world? What what are you what are you up to, Jan Fran? Um, so I'm back on um, the briefing, which is the podcast I was doing before the show, and back on the proge, which I was also doing before the show as well. Now, by the way, is the proge an expression anyone other than no. you is using? Like, is that what commonly people call the project, or have I missed something? Literally, like, no one calls are, it. Are that. you just trying to get that I'm going? Tr- I'm trying to make fetch happen, and it's just not yeah. happening. It's just me and my husband. But, um, yeah, that's <laughs> it's like, he's like, are you on the proge today? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm on the proge today. <laughs> okay, the proge. Um, it hasn't caught on, sadly. Um, but, you know, just been kind of uh, lurking around, doing my thing, trying to enjoy the summer. I feel a bit discombobulated coming out of lockdown, to be honest with you, because, like, Okay, so I was hoping we might get to yeah. this. I really want to see where you're at because I've had a weird experience. I'll give you my little short version yeah. first and then we'll get to you to lay the table, set the table. So um, I've kind of continued living pretty much in lockdown, even though you know Sydney is you know pretty free for people who are double vaccinated. But because I went straight into another show and I'm still in a bit of a bubble with, you know, if I get sick or if I just walk into the wrong cafe and I get like a secondary contact, then, you know, 60, 70 people that week, you know, don't have their job. And so I've just been trying to, as much as I can control, like, you know, my life a little, but I went out to dinner the other night with Amy and uh, Justin Hamilton and it was so much oh, fun. great. Like, and it was just three of us at a restaurant, like a little restaurant. I'd chosen it specifically because I knew they would be very COVID safe and it was only like a really, like, then they have like 14, 15 people in there anyway. But I, oh my God, I can't remember when I felt that good. I was like, like being back out in public is like really intoxicating. Like I'd forgotten how much that I missed it i got used to it not being around and i had good reasons for it not to be around so so where are you at yeah well i'm sort of like in a very similar position but i the minute that we were allowed to see family i think the big thing for me was being able to go to my parents house and being able to go to my sister's house and just being able to drop in to people's houses which sort of just felt like a bit of a like a load off my shoulders i'm like how good's this i get to see my parents and pull up in their driveway um, but the other day I also went to dinner with some mates of mine um, and my partner, it was like eight of us. And I remember um, I was wearing heels and I remember like the sound of the heels 
clicking on the pavement and it was nighttime. And I said to my husband, I was like, oh my God, I have not heard this sound in an evening setting or really any setting in a very long time. And it just, it felt so good. It felt like such a great vibe. I mean, I got dressed up to go out and like, it wasn't until I got dressed up to go out that Amy commented on the fact that I'd been wearing the exact same hoodie every day for the entire time she'd been down. Because <laughs> she only came down, I've been by myself, you know, for, for three months and she only came down recently when the restrictions eased a little bit and so, you know, she could go out and actually do some stuff while she was here. Because I just got used to that idea of I just wear the same clothes every day, I just do the same thing every day, I sit in front of this computer and I do all my meetings and that is all I do. And then the idea that I was independently getting dressed up and going out to dinner, I felt like... I was 18 and, you know, when you first go out to dinner with your friends and you dress up really, like, we were more dressed up than most of the people in the restaurant, yeah, yeah. you know, because we were just like, this is special. <laughs> and everyone else is just like, I just came from the surf. <laughs> yeah, it was a sort of a similar vibe too. But it just kind of, it, like, I, I kind of look back at the last, well, how long were we in lockdown? For like four months. And mm. I don't know if, it, if it's the same for you. And, you know, obviously we were doing the show from start to finish in lockdown, the entire, the entire show. show, like yeah. pre-production and everything, really. Um, yeah, it's it's and by the way, I mean out, out of my control, but like what a terrible Christmas present to get somebody because I was your like you know stepdad who only sees you on the weekends and is going to buy your affection by like telling you that we're going to go to Disneyland and we're going to go on all the rides and then suddenly it's a lockdown and we're at Wobby's World for eight weeks and you're just like oh (laughs) dad I know this is not your fault but this is not what you said we were doing I mean to be honest I was pretty happy to be at where Wobby's World (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, that might be a regional reference, Wobby's World. I was trying to think of the most piss week. What the fuck is Wobby's World? <laughs> Gumbaya Park. Any of these working? Australia's Wonderland. Yeah, Jamboree. That's the only other thing I can think of. Um, uh, look, I, I was like, I was stoked to be there, to be honest with you. But I will say, um, I think I probably underestimated some of the challenges required to make a television show from start to finish in lockdown. Like there were some challenges that I went, yeah, cool. I know this challenge. We're not going to have a studio audience. That's a challenge. You know, we're not going to be able to get the combinations of comics that we want for particular episodes. That's a challenge. That's fine. But I think what I sort of wasn't prepared for was like the inability to debrief with the whole team and crew afterwards and just like go for a drink and, you know, just kind of let off steam and that I struggled quite a bit with that because I felt like there was most, yeah. most of it is most that. Most of it is that. Yeah. Yeah. Because then otherwise like small conversations become big conversations, which is not always the most healthy way to do something either. Like sometimes all you need is a nudge in a direction. But of course, when you don't have that time to have a drink with someone or like have a conversation with somebody about, hey, what did you think worked tonight? And what do you think didn't work tonight? And how did you feel about like the recording versus what went to air? And who did you get good energy from? And if you didn't get good energy from someone, is that because we didn't brief them to look in your direction? Or like, what is it that, like all those conversations are just really small things about making a show. But of course, when you're not having them like that, 
instead what you end up having is meetings about things and things become like I, I often think the adjustments feel sharper and sometimes the best way to adjust isn't to take like a you know, a right turn. It's just to like, you know, kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll find our way back to where we need to go. And so I think that is one of the challenges that you can only understand when you're yeah, in it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the idea of doing a show from scratch, trying to come up with an original idea and then do it from scratch is hard enough you know, at the best of times. And it's why mostly people don't do that. They take an overseas format that already works and they do an Australian version of it. But we were trying not to do that. And we were trying to do it with, you know, new comedians, people who, some some of whom were having their very first time on television. But for me, I did not see the challenge of them. I forgot that they wouldn't also be doing gigs Mm. And they they wouldn't mm. be like riffing with their friends backstage, exactly. And they wouldn't necessarily be in the day to day of the news because you don't have to be. Yeah. So if you're not doing gigs, if you're not doing radio spots, if you're not having to get up a comedy, like you don't have to engage in the news and the week and the world in the same way as you ordinarily do. And I think that's quite healthy. I would recommend that to people. If you don't need to be caught up in the twenty four hour news cycle, then don't. Like that's a good thing, but. We would then just drag these comedians into an empty studio, go, hey, I know you've never been on TV before and this is all completely foreign to you, but could you please really be funny like about some stuff that we've just given you? Yeah, and you haven't – there's something to be said for rolling off the momentum Mm. of live shows as well. You know, you do it it once, you do it the next day, you do it the next day. There's an audience, you're feeding off that. There's a momentum there. So when somebody comes into a studio after that momentum – yeah. You know, they're feeling good. They're kind of they're, – they're feeding off that energy that they've already kind of built. We didn't have that in lockdown and we didn't have an audience. We just – we had the crew who we were like, make sure you laugh, you know, who were like mandated laughter. Uh, but even worse than that, we would literally <laughs> – and again, I'm, I shout mean, out to the it, crew. It's a, love the crew, the best. They're the fucking best. love the crew. And so then we had to try to rearrange the day so that the crew would laugh at the jokes, which meant I did one rehearsal in the morning of like the jokes, and then for the rest of the day we'd rehearse without three quarters of the script in the script. Yeah. So that the crew would actually at least be hearing it fresh on the night. To but be that's fair, no that way was better. But yeah. Yeah, but it's no way to rehearse a show. No. <laughs> That's not the point of rehearsal is to not rehearse the stuff. And so, I mean, these were all great challenges and looking back on it, like I am amazed and really energized by how many of the things we managed to get right. We certainly didn't get all of them right, but like, uh, you know, considering the challenges that we faced, I felt like we dealt with a lot of them really well. And I loved seeing on the opposite of that idea that these guys weren't doing gigs, the spirit of collaboration between the guests, like the fact that the comedians would like hang out together backstage and trade lines and there'd be young writers that we had on as interns on the show trying to get some experience in TV that would sit in that room and try to like throw them a line or bounce off them or at least be someone to laugh at their jokes so they got a bit of confidence. All that stuff I like really dug. I thought it was really cool to see. And that's when it worked best. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you, you you could feel that in the room as well when there was like, you know, back and forthing between the comics and they'd kind of, you know, they'd worked on a, a on a joke together or maybe it was like a it was a two-parter or whatever it was and that was like, oh, okay, there's yeah. some bounce here, you know, because when you don't have a studio audience, as I'm sure you know, um, like the energy has to come from the panel. So you're, 
you know, you're <laughs> somebody, somebody did make the comment to me the other night that they were like, geez, you laugh a lot on that show and you don't laugh at all on Gruen. And I was like, well, partly that is because most of the jokes on Gruen I'm doing. So that would be a little inelegant. But yeah. the other thing is that, of course, like, my, you know, I particularly felt like, you know, a responsibility to give our guests as much encouragement for what they were doing. Um, as I possibly could because I know more than anyone that you're more likely to be good like I I can guarantee you this if you were annoyed by how much I laughed on the show like the more we have an audience and the more people are natural that will obviously go away but this the other thing is you would have hated the show a lot more if I didn't laugh because all those comedians would have completely gone into their shell they wouldn't have felt supported out there trying to do what they were trying to do and so I did what I thought was like my responsibility in that situation, which was just to be as encouraging of everybody as I possibly could be. Oh yeah, that was that's the absolute yeah. correct thing to do. But it's hard uh, yeah. when sometimes you're like, because like, once you set the agenda that I'm going to laugh at everything too, when I don't, it's really silent in the room all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> like that's how bad that one was tiger i haven't even i missed that one <laughs> um can i can i ask you this um uh moving on from that but that was nice to talk about it was a really fun experience and i thank you for doing it and i look forward to you know hopefully us doing it again in the future in much better circumstances and i think we'll be i think yeah, we'll be pretty too. wrapped that we got Pleasure. to do I think in the end, it'll be really good for the show. Like, you know, if you can make it work in the conditions we made it work in, I absolutely guarantee once we add the things that were meant to be there in the first place, it's just going to really start to sing, I think. so. Oh, we're sweet. I'm not going to get I think that's a good start. <laughs> if we get another season and there's a studio audience and, and you know, and none of, no lockdowns. Girl, I'm not I'm barely turning up. <laughs> so, okay. We're, so we're coming out of lockdown. When you look at the world at the moment, like how are you feeling? Like has it changed in the last few months? Like, you know, was there like, you know, was there a period in lockdown where – you know, I mean, you had things that you were concentrating on and doing, but was there like more, dis- like there seemed to be a, a greater darkness and more despondency around our direction out of what we're, now it seems like, you know, there was a lot of talk around people not getting vaccinated and there was a lot of talk about all these things. Yeah. And look, it turns out that the good news is that, you know, a loud minority, you know, it, it seems we're going to have, you know, very, very high rates of vaccination in this country. And I think that's, a thing we can be incredibly proud of as a country. Um, But how do you feel? How do you feel about where we're at? You know what? I love that you brought up that point because one of the um, best feelings that I had in during this lockdown and coming out of lockdown was how willing people were. I mean, I'm talking about New South Wales, but also, also Victoria as well and, you know, other parts of the country, but mainly New South Wales, like how willing everyone was to get vaxxed and the reason it made me so happy was because for a moment there um because you look at these things through the distortion of social media you know it's it's a trick mirror right like it's it's it gives you this distorted view of reality um and so for a moment there i thought holy shit we're gonna have a population that not only doesn't want to get vaccinated, but is going to start to influence everyone else not to get vaccinated as well. And we might have this kind of, you know, um, 
struggle to get the information out there. And I was really cognizant of that doing the show as well, of just like, how do you get the right info out to the right people at the right time? It's immensely challenging. And fortunately, and I was just looking at the stats today, like New South Wales is 94% first dose, baby. You know, so my great fear about what we now know to be a very small minority of people, my great fear about them influencing everyone else and then that having a really negative impact on society and on immunocompromised people, on disabled people, on frontline workers, on, you know, older people, that hasn't come to fruition. So I'm stoked with that. It leads to a like interesting conversation. Right. Which I like in something that we grappled with with the show. And I think like, you know, we could reflect on, too, is about how much legitimacy you give these voices just because they're loud. Okay, so there's that argument. Right. But you don't know. And like future research might find out some of this, but you don't know how much of combating that misinformation at the time is handy in the fact that we now have 95 percent. Certainly hearing those voices in the media hasn't seemed to stop people getting vaccinated. That's what I would say. Whatever currency they got and whatever position they had getting their voice out there and their arguments out there, it hasn't seemed to have stopped a huge amount of people from getting vaccinated. Yeah, it hasn't. I don't know if it could have, and I don't know why it hasn't. That's the thing. It's like, uh, is it? And, and look, it could. I suspect it's because certain place workplaces have mandated as well that you must get vaccinated. So people are like, well. We want to be able to work. And there's also been like pretty key incentives. Like if you want to travel, if you want New South Wales to open back up, you know, this is our kind of roadmap out of here. So get vaxxed. Um, but yeah, that, that question on like how much do you entertain? Like I'm, you know what, if you'd asked me like two years ago, oh, would you sit down and, you know, with an anti-vaxxer and try and work out where they're coming from? And I probably would have said Yes. If you ask me today, hmm. I'd say fuck no. If you want to be an anti-vaxxer, you go ahead and be an anti-vaxxer. That has consequences. And honestly, I don't I, I think we're presented I'm probably gonna get in trouble for saying this, but whatever. We're sort of we're presented with this idea of um, people deciding not to get vaccinated as a binary choice versus another binary choice. Mm. Well, it's your choice, Will, not to get vaccinated as it's my mm. choice to get vaccinated and they're two sides of the same coin. Well, no, they're not because actually your choice is anti-science. It is grossly out of step with the rest of the community. It is riddled with fear. It is driven by misinformation and it's selfish. And my choice is none of those things. And that's the key difference. Yeah. So I, I, there, I think there is a clear difference when you get down to that basic thing of saying there are two choices here. One of them is because you say it's your choice to take it, your choice not to take it. Okay. I chose to do something that is very slightly risky, right? Like, I mean, yeah. that's the truth of it. Very, very slightly risky. But there is a risk. Like there are you know, some risks to taking it. They are just extremely small. And we are asked as a society to all take a small risk on the benefit that it's going to help everybody in like, you know, a a big way. So you choose to do that. You choose to make a sacrifice, a potential, you know, however small that potential is, you choose that versus the person who says, I'm not going to do that on behalf of society, but I'd still like to enjoy all the things that society provides. Look, you know what? You're actually still going to get heaps of them. 
The cops will still come to your house if it's broken into and you'll still get admitted to a hospital if you're sick. And there's some people who want to make arguments that those things shouldn't be available to vaccinated people. I think that is too far. I think that is ridiculous. I think that that's not how the medical system works. It should be, you know, for people, you know, who are sick no matter how... It's a universal right. If you see it as a universal right, it should be extended to everyone. Yeah, right? To everybody, regardless of their circumstance. But... But the idea that like you don't get to sacrifice a little on behalf of everyone and you still get to go to your favorite gig or you still get to like go to some, you know, workplace where you being there endangers yeah, puts everybody right. else. You this person who wasn't willing to sacrifice anything then puts everybody else in a situation where their sacrifice means less. They're not the sa- they're totally not the same thing. Yeah, I don't think they they they're just not the same thing. I agree with you. So Okay, there was um, a, a thing that I was, I was looking at the other day. It was, um, it was on the conversation. It's written by um, two academics from the University of Melbourne. And it's basically like it was a really just very clear like uh, graph that they kind of drew up. And the headline was, your unvaccinated friend is roughly 20 times more likely to give you COVID, right? And they showed that if um, someone was vaccinated – there was 10% less risk of them being infected and 20% less risk of them infecting you. So we have this situation where, again, coming back to that binary choice, it's not just a choice. It's not just your personal choice. It's a choice you are making that is affecting everyone else. Now, if someone's a business owner who runs a restaurant and you're coming into their restaurant, well, they've got to be cognizant of the fact that you're 20 times more likely to infect the next person that comes to their restaurant. And that person might be, you know, going through cancer and is immunocompromised. That person might be chronically ill. That person might be an older person. So they've got to take into account people who are not you because it doesn't just revolve around you as an individual. It just doesn't. And I think, like, when you were talking there about you made a decision, and, yeah, there is some risk associated with it, and I'm not – I would – wouldn't dream of hiding that and I don't want to hide that. I want to be as open and, and frank um, as possible about this stuff. Um, but it's like uh, the decision that I've made protects you as well. Like aren't you lucky that 94% of the eligible population of this state have decided to get vaccinated? How lucky for you because you are now safer even though you have decided not to. Right. In fact, you should be you should be wrapped that that many people have. That's the great irony of the ones who chant against the people lined up at the vaccine clinics. You know the, these extremes where you're like, no, 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 mate. If you honestly don't want to get vaccinated and you eventually want to be back in society, the the only path forward where that happens is that 98% of the rest of the population get vaccinated and they're all willing to get their boosters and whatever. And then, you know what? They'll probably get to the point where they go, ah, all right, well, you guys can come back as well. But what you actually want, if you're an anti-vaxxer, is everybody else to get vaccinated because that is better for you. That's so much better for you. And, I mean, sometimes I think about this and I'm like, thank you, science. Like, Jesus, Mm. Mary and Joseph, thank you to all of the scientists out there who managed to come up with a life-saving vaccine in the mm. nick of time in the middle of this deadly pandemic? Like, can you imagine? No, so no. I, I mean, I don't mean to. Like, I don't mean to correct you on this, but about fifteen working vaccines. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, it's not even 
like you know a year and a half ago two years ago you know we were facing the greatest modern day plague and we didn't even know if there was going to be a vaccine there were legitimate conversations being had around the idea that maybe this is not something they'll be able to develop a vaccine against and then suddenly within like a year like you're spoiled for choice to the point where our country like essentially ruined its rollout and could have been in a completely different position just because we had brand choice. Yeah. Just because people wanted to wait around for a better option. That's how quickly. Like, And then these people who make that argument of, well, you know, it's like there just wasn't enough time in development. Well, to quote yourself back to you, do some research and find out that actually a lot of these things, variations of them have been researched for a very long time. And most of the time, the reason that that research takes so long is because the funds aren't directed towards it. But guess what? Everybody had a really compelling reason to direct a whole bunch of funds towards research in this area. And then the other thing that I just find absolutely mind-blowing yes, is go off, now go off, baby. Five, five billion people have had it. And a lot of them have had it for ages. And there's basically no vaccine in the history of vaccines where major side effects have turned up after six months. There's a study. The study is walking alongside you. The study is at the concert you want to go to. The study is eating food at the restaurant that you want to be able to eat at. Like that's, that is the study. Yeah. No, I'm, uh, like, I'm, I'm with you. And I just I find sometimes it's like people who have never had a concern about the scientific methods behind immunology and or actually have been very au fait with dangerous substances in their bodies, (laughs) you know, suddenly they have this very big problem with this clinically tested researched vaccination. And it's like, mate, you've put more horse tranquilizer in your body than most horses. Like... I don't think you get to wax lyrical right now about what's in this vaccine. You know? Did you did you see the Joe Rogan Gruen thing? No. Okay. So yesterday, Joe Rogan. Are you familiar with Joe Rogan? Hosts a thing called the Joe Rogan Podcast. Oh, Joe Rogan I'm, Experience I'm or something it's called. With Joe Rogan. Yeah. American uh, stand up comedian, UFC commentator. Social commentator Mm -hmm. has been described as the sort of Gwyneth Paltrow for men, you know, in that he sort of runs this weird wellness world that involves like hunting elk and freezing yourself and all these, you know, various things that he believes. And also was a major proponent for ivermectin and cocktails of other things to treat COVID when he got it. So anyway, Joe, he's been rallying a lot recently about... um, He's been uh, talking a lot recently about, uh, I guess, Australia being under siege. Are you familiar with this? Man, it's not just Joe Rogan. It's like Americans writ large seem to think that we're living in a totalitarian state. Yep, go on. So, Joe Rogan on uh, his Instagram yesterday. Not only is Australia the worst reaction to a pandemic with dystopian police state measures that are truly inconceivable to the rest of the civilised world, but they also have the dumbest propaganda. And then he has linked an ad that uh, an agency made for Gruen 
around in the pitch segment of Gruen, which was about getting vaccine hesitant people to take the vaccine. And it's a guy having like an allergy attack in a cafe and somebody comes with an EpiPen and he starts asking about what's in the EpiPen and what were the studies and what what does Joe Rogan think? Can't someone call Joe as he dies on the floor, right? And Joe believes... That this is a piece of propaganda from the Australian oh, government no. that is running as a real ad. And he has posted it as such. <laughs> Two hours later, edit. Apparently, this is not a real ad. <laughs> it's from a satirical show. <laughs> so, literally, in trying to say that people spread ridiculous propaganda, he <laughs> did not do his own research, fact-checked. That it was a real government ad oh, that's and actually posted it as if it was true. What is, what's with that vibe though of just Americans thinking that we're, you know, we're living in some kind of totalitarian, really dystopic, right? Like, do you know how many Americans have died? Like, no shade, but like 600, 700,000 Americans yeah. have died, man. You know, yeah, we didn't have we didn't. We, they had days where, like, total that are nothing like the total we've had of anyone who's died in this yeah. country. Like, this is, you know, it's a completely different circumstance. And also, we're not in lockdown anymore, dude. Like, we're, we're back. I'll send you some like Instagram live from Bondi on a Saturday night. Like, Australia is not locked down. Yeah, we're back, and we've managed to, um, you know, save quite a few lives. I imagine. And also, I don't know if you've ever heard of Western Australia or Queensland or South Australia or Tasmania. They were pretty much open the whole time. (laughs) I don't know where. I wonder what they're consuming. This is always a really interesting question for Mm. me. It's like when somebody has an opinion about anything really, my first question is like, what are you consuming to get you to that opinion? Like what, what is the input that makes that opinion the output? Well, you know how now, like, I mean, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's dating shorthand. Like, you know, I went on a date with a guy, but he said he listens to the Joe Rogan experience. And so it can never work out, right? That has become sort of a meme way of describing a certain type of person. And I would make the argument that no one hears the Joe Rogan podcast more than Joe Rogan. He's there for every one of them. So, like, you know, if listening to the Joe Rogan podcast (laughs) destroys your brain, then it's going to, by nature, destroy the brain of the person who's hosting the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, Yeah, I I wonder what what the appeal is. Like, genuinely, I'm not, I'm really not saying that in a shady way. I'm saying that more in, like, a curious way. Like, because it's the most popular podcast on the planet, right? Yeah. But you know what? Actually, truth be told, I've listened to a few episodes of the podcast. Um, and I find it's like when he talks to someone who's like a sleep scientist. Mm. Yeah, I think the thing I'm just I'm just riffing now, but I feel like the thing with with that podcast is like okay, we talk to a sleep scientist and then we talk to an elk hunter and then we talk to uh a MMA fighter and then we talk to this health expert and then we talk to a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and we talk to them all the same way. That's the problem to me. Like, as in, I, I don't have an extra level of rigor. In fact, he saves his extra level of rigor sometimes for people he disagrees with. But I'll I'll put it this way: rather than kind of like throwing shade on Joe, I'll I'll, I'll see what I recognise. Like for this show, I when I have guests on, I want them to be good. Like, not for me, but for them. 
Like I want to create a space in which the person can show the best of themselves. That's, that is my aim for this show. And it's why I don't invite people on the show that I really disagree with. Like, you know, I wouldn't have someone, I've said it before, I wouldn't have a Andrew Bolt or a Joe Hildebrand or whoever it might be on the show because my natural inclination with this show would be to create a safe space for them to try to find things we connected on to try to say ah you might not be like the monster that your opinions paint you out to be here's some things that we have in common and i don't want to do that i don't want to give a friendly face or a point of connection to people who have really dangerous and terrible and poisonous ideas in my opinion but he does like Mm -hmm. he interviews one of his comedian mates in a similar way to how he interviews alex jones He doesn't like put on a more journalistic hat to talk to Alex. And I think some audiences really respond to that because they go, great, I get to hear everybody without an agenda or without judgment, right? I understand how as a listener, you might respond to that. My argument back in return is Alex Jones has an agenda. Mm. So is is it a good place where the only person at the table who has an agenda is Alex Jones, right? To me, that is not a good place. Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> Many thoughts. Many thoughts. Again, I feel like I've come I feel like I've come like I'm not gonna say full circle, but I've I've kind of um progressed, I guess. I don't know. I've I've sort of moved in a slightly different direction on this. And again, if you'd sort of asked me two years ago, like two years ago there was this idea sort of percolating in my brain for ages, um, which is like this podcast idea called I Really Wanna Like You. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think you'll agree is a great name and we can already get a sense of what it is. So branding, d- thumbs mm. up. Um, I will put, I will say this though, that Tom Gleeson used to have like a segment called I Hate You Changed My Mind. Okay, don't, don't worry which, about that. Let's pretend you didn't say that. I really want to like <laughs> it. Very original. Um, <laughs> original concept there, yep, by me. Yeah. Uh, TM. <laughs> but... So so and, and and the concept was because I am genuinely fascinated by yeah. or or just or interested fundamentally in people who disagree with me um or people who have these ideas that are fucked it's like how can you have that idea that idea mm. is so fucked i know how i can have the idea that i have but how can you have the idea that you have it's so fucked mm-hmm. please tell me all your secrets and so the, it was this idea of like, okay, well, I just want to have these people that I fundamentally disagree with, who I don't really like. I mean, the premise is I don't like you. And I want to approach it with kind of this, just this open-handed, you know, palms open, safe space. I, I actually want to get to know you and like you. I don't like you. I really want to like you. Let's, let's have that conversation. So it wasn't this kind of, you know, gotcha, journalistic conversation, yada, yada, yada. But... The minute you put an audience in that frame, right? Because if it's just me and person I disagree with, that's fine because all their ideas are coming straight to me and they're percolating in my brain and I'm processing it and that's fine because I'm me and I can... I live in the Northern Rivers of... I live in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. Every conversation I have at a party is with somebody who I fundamentally disagree with (laughs) and I am... Very open and fascinated by everything that they believe. Like, Yes, but add the recorder, add the camera, add the audience. That becomes a very different premise, doesn't it? Because suddenly Mm -hmm. you have a responsibility 
um, you know, in that scenario where it's just you and the other person, it's a kind of a linear exchange. It's you and it's them. And your responsibility, if you have any in that scenario, is to that person and their responsibility is to you. But once you add an audience into that, then suddenly your responsibility mm-hmm. is to the audience, right? Yeah. And that changes actually the, di- the entire dynamic of this conversation. And so this idea kind of just like sat in my head and, sat, and I said, I really want to do it. And I want to, you know, I want to, I, I, I think it's, it can be a good thing and I'm genuinely interested in it. And mm-hmm. anything that you're genuinely interested in, like your passion is going to drive. You're going to want to do it on your day off. You're going to want to do it mm-hmm. because it's something that you want to do, right? Um, but in the end, I couldn't reconcile putting, I couldn't reconcile providing a space for these odious opinions mm-hmm. and not challenge them. And not have them contextualized. And, you know, because, yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's just the responsibilities to the audience. And I was listening to this. I was listening to Slow Burn, actually. I don't know if you've listened to that podcast. Mm-hmm. Quite a good podcast. I have. Yeah, but they... What are you... Li- what, what, which one? All of them. I listened to Monica. No, but which one, uh, is the, which one are you referencing oh, specifically I'm referencing the one the about moment. David Duke. Uh-huh. So did you okay. listen to that I, one? No, I haven't done that. I've only listened to the Lewinsky one and the Tupac yeah, and Tupac Biggie. Biggie, yeah. Biggie one. Oh, my God, that's crazy. <laughs> I don't want to give it away, but, like, oh, man, so much of that could have just been prevented if there was some good communication. Yeah. Just talk it out, guys. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, the one I'm talking about is um, the one about the rise of David Duke, who's the, um, you know, whatever, grand wizard of the KKK all-round dickhead, um, massive racist, just odious person, right? So this guy, David Duke, starts out in, I believe it was Louisiana, and, you know, he agitates, he's running for a couple of the, um, you know, parliamentary or government seats there. Um, He's sort of just been in the wings and in the peripheries, and he's a fucking racist. Like, this guy's disgusting, right? And because he's sort of building up this profile in Louisiana, there's this show on television that, you know, speaks to, you know, really kind of whatever crazy fringe not even crazy fringe people like anyone with a story they put them on television what's your story let's get david duke on television this was a nationally syndicated program the name escapes me off the top of my head but um for anyone interested listen to the slow burn podcast um so get david duke on this nationally syndicated program he's the host he asks him a few kind of you know lowball questions like are you a racist david duke says no i'm not a racist and david duke you know he's a charming guy ends up like fucking charming charming the reporter, you know, charming the presenter. They have this conversation like they're just two people shooting the breeze. Right. And that episode has been widely credited, that episode and that show, widely credited for introducing David Duke to America. Mm. And it's like, fuck me, do you want to be that show? Do you want to be that journalist that looks back at your career and goes, ah, shit, I put David Duke on national television and just treated him like a regular guy. No. I And I think that you've got to understand that if David Duke has a following where you are, that he could have that same following. There's that same percentage of people in every market who just don't have their David Duke yet. And you're about to advertise, you know, positions vacant in David Duke's, like, you know, pajama army. Like, it's... yeah. I, I, feel, I feel the same way about – I've been very conflicted lately, Jan Fran, mm-hmm. about uh, a uh, war of words uh, between uh, two of the most famous comedians on the planet and two people that I have 
admiration for in in different ways, uh, Dave Chappelle and Hannah Gadsby. And less so a war of words. Like, I mean, it's not like Hannah set out to engage in a war of words. So I think it's actually unfair to even position it as being necessarily two comedians going head to head because I don't think that is actually what happened at all. Um, Dave Chappelle, as famously everybody would know by now, uh, released a special, had a series of jokes about trans people that many people have interpreted as being transphobic. There has been a lot of literature and it is part of an ongoing, uh, you know, conversation or war with the trans community, depending on what your perspective is, that Dave Chappelle has been, I don't really know why, but has just unfortunately been relentlessly pursuing. And Dave Chappelle is someone who I think has been one of the, the world's greatest comedians and a incredibly intelligent next level thinker on a whole bunch of things like race and you know you know he's been a great comedian i have had great admiration for him as a comedian but this particular part of his comedy i find unnecessary at best and at worst you know i do think that a lot of the arguments that are made about the material he does and the way he does it are pretty legitimate i think that's just my take anyway you know, there's been protests around it and that's all good. You know, he's got his free speech and the protesters have their free speech and that feels like a good thing to happen. Like it feels like these things, it's a cultural phenomena, him releasing a special, the fact that it is debated and argued about and discussed and people can frame their world perspective through a piece of art, I think is all really good stuff. And then the head of Netflix dragged Hannah Gadsby into it basically as a defense shield, you know, come on, like, you know, yes, we can have some transphobic stuff on, but the good news is we've also got Hannah Gadsby and paraphrasing, to be honest. But, but you know, and so Hannah, I think, to, you're t- talking about somebody who's willing to take a risk. Hannah called out her employer. She didn't call out somebody who's below her on, a, like, the pecking order. She said, I'm willing to risk probably millions of dollars in having my shows at the home of, like, you know, worldwide entertainment in this. Like, she said, I'm going to stand on principle. Keep my name out of your justifications, right? And then Dave Chappelle, obviously, then... Sorry, if, if people... People might be across all this, but if you're not, this is the short version of it. There is so much stuff you can read about this. But Dave Chappelle then did a little extra that he released where he basically said that um you know he wasn't going to get called out by the trans community he'd meet them on his terms and then he laid out his terms and one of those terms was that they had to admit that hannah gadsby was not funny now to me i hated this so much i just hated it so Why? much i hated that like i hated that the like a guy who He's one of the all-time greats was even bothering to do this shit. Like, you you should be better than that for a start. Like, like make your points about whatever you want to make your points about, but there's no reason to, like, call out Hannah in that regard, in my opinion. The second thing is that it's not about Dave and Hannah. If it was just Dave and Hannah, they were having a debate or whatever, then they're both very intelligent, competent people who could hold their own in any discussion. But... It's what you were saying about the idea of putting David Duke on television. Because what I think Dave Chappelle did was put David Duke on television. He said to a lot of people who do not have the sophistication or nuance or any of those things that Dave Chappelle might credit himself with or people might credit him with and set them upon Hannah Gadsby. Mm. Like, you know, he set the trolls of the internet out on a mission to destroy, defile, run down reviews, like whatever it is against Hannah Gadsby. And for me... 
that felt irresponsible because he must have known what he was doing. Like it felt disproportionate to release his army on Hannah. Yeah. Thoughts. <laughs> 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 um, oh man, I yeah, I have I have quite a lot of thoughts about this, but they're all sort of like swimming around my head, and mm. I feel like I need to kind of think more. I think I need to think deeply about this in order to kind of synthesize them. Mm. Um, but top line stuff, I mean, H- Hannah Gatsby, she was dragged into this because her name was mentioned, and you know. I think anyone in that situation, if their name was mentioned, you would feel compelled to mount some kind of, you know, defence or statement of your position, right? Well, she certainly had the right to. I don't think that everyone would have had the courage yeah, to, but she certainly had absolutely. the right to. And I think it was. I think it was a courageous thing, and she was. She didn't mince words either, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I think so many people would have seen that and just thought, thank God for Hannah Gatsby. Like, thank God that there is this person who is so prominent, who, you know, has the courage to say this stuff publicly without, you know, batting an eye, so to speak. Um, and then Dave Chappelle kind of saying that about her. Oh, yeah, totally unnecessary. I, I'm not sure. I watched The Closer. Um. And I must say, I was. Um, there were bits of it that I thought were a bit confusing, and there were bits of it that I must say felt very jarring to hear, especially him saying, "I'm Team Turf." That felt jarring for me to hear. Uh, I don't know why he went and said that. Um, and I think overall, he sort of seems. And I've watched like previous specials of his as well. There seems to kind of be this understanding that like the LGBTQI movement is gaining ground because it's driven by privileged white men. And I guess, you know, there is an argument to be made about the power imbalances and the dynamics within that community. Is Dave Chappelle the best person to be making those observations? Probably not. Did he hit the well, nail it, on the head? it ignores black trans it just, people it totally for a start. It ignores the nuances within that community entirely. And he's got another special where he said, I hope I'm not wrong here because I was just recently watching it, where, you know, like the transgender movement's gaining ground. He was talking about Caitlyn Jenner because white men want to do it. And it's like, oh, man, I think that that is just a an extremely ungracious um, very narrow, offensive reading of of transness and what it means to be a trans person. I don't want to speak on behalf of the community. That's like I, I'm really kind of conscious of of not doing that. But you know, trans people exist in all cultures, for and they have since forever. You know, so forever, forever. Like, so this like that's. I, but could you make a satirical and interesting argument around the media's fascination now that it's like a famous white man doing it, then there's an argument to be made. You could get comedy out of that. But the idea that that is somehow like the the butt of that joke is the popularity of like the trans, the perceived popularity of being trans mm. is the wrong direction comedically to take that. I mean, from I'm not here to tell Dave Chappelle how to do his job, but I guess I am. That's what I'm thinking. In my opinion, that's, you know, I, I was, I, I don't have the right either to speak, you know, on behalf of trans people, 
I speak like as a comedian. I think that just a lot of it is bad comedy. Yeah. Like that team turf, that team turf yeah. thing. Like some of these other discussions around the trans stuff is more nuanced. And he clearly has a bit at the end where he, you know, says until we can kind of you know joke equally without you know spoiling the punchline, the whole thing. Like his his kind of final moment is until we can kind of laugh together on the same level. I'm not going to do any of this sort of material anymore. But that is somewhat undermined about by the fact that he just spent the last 15 yeah, minutes doing like- a fair amount of hacky material on that topic. So because that stuff, like if you've come to that realization, because I imagine you haven't had that realization right in that spot, and they filmed it for your Netflix special. I believe you've yeah. run some of this material before, so you've had the realization. Why do it- why do the 50, cut that 15 minutes out? Say, oh, guys, this show was going to be 15 minutes longer, but it turns out I had a realisation. But that's the kind of, like, it, that's the bit about it that felt disingenuous to me because it's yeah. exactly that. It's like, oh, okay, so, so you realise that people are not laughing equally and you mm. realise that that's a bad thing because you've said that until people laugh equally, you're not going to do this stuff anymore because mm. that's the goal. You want people to yeah. laugh equally. Well, it's exactly that. It's like, hang on, if you know that, mm. then why did you do this one-hour special? You know, and I don't know. There were just there were some jokes in there as well that were. Give us, give us the. Re- I mean, again, no, I'm not here to tell him how to do his job. But what I think he is capable of, and I would have loved to see, is if he has had genuinely that revelation. Let's just say he's had that revelation, but he also has this 15 minutes of all over the place trans observations that he feels he needs to get off his chest. Then tell us that you've had the observation, and then tell us the material you were going to do and why you now know. Then deconstruct it. Like, that would be great to see. Mm. Here was my bit, and now here's why I realise this is an unequal conversation that we're having. That would be fun. That would be really... The other thing that really pissed me off about it was that he diminished her style of comedy when so much of his style of comedy is exactly the same as her style of comedy. Like, to me, I look at two people who have a lot of jokes and are really comfortable around joke jokes, but also understand that they can hold the room by just having something interesting to say in a creative way like that comedy doesn't need to be punchline 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 that's what dave Chappelle is as much as what hannah gadsby is the idea that one of those isn't legitimate they're the same you're doing the same fucking thing like anyway i just the other thing is like there was some jokes in there about i don't know that there was a, a joke in there about jews and and you know kind of jews sort of being powerful or running the world and, you know, space Jews. But it's kind of like, man, this guy was paid millions of dollars, so much money, and there's a joke in there about Jews. Like that's – it's just such trodden ground, you know. That was the other thing of just like it's your swan song, you're getting paid tens of millions of dollars. Like – we're expecting some top-level shit here, you know? Um, Instead, it felt like he was cleaning out his... <laughs> like, he's just like, well, i got to be honest. I'm turning a new page, so all this shit's got to go. It's like a closing down sale. That's what it was. <laughs> That's why it's called... It was originally called the closing down sale, and they said, can we just not make it so blunt? Can you shorten it a bit? Just Yeah. And, and, and if there's one other thing, there's, there's so many things that I've taken away from this, but like I said, I haven't synthesised them in my brain for them to be articulate or like profound enough. But one of the things that I feel like we are probably going to be talking about more is like corporations and their allegiances. You know, if you thought Netflix was your mate, if you thought Netflix gave a shit, like I don't think it does. 
you know, this idea of like corporations leaning into support for progressive causes or like uh, maybe it's just like inherent in me. I'm very cynical. I don't trust companies. I don't trust corporations. I don't trust they're not moral arbiters. I wouldn't ascribe them any level of morality necessarily. Um, and I think if you do, you're going to get bit. And when Hannah Gatsby wrote, you know, fuck you and your amoral algorithm, like, yeah, at best, they're amoral. At worst, they're immoral. I'm not talking about Netflix, you know, specifically, but just kind of... For legal reasons. For legal reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Um, but, you know, just corporations in general kind of like leaning into these sort of progressive values. It's like, oh, I don't know, that raises, that raises an eyebrow for me. Um, because I think, you know, like we've seen here, it's like Ted Sarandos can go, oh, I mean, we've got what people might think is transphobic content, but, and we've also got uh, Hannah Gatsby, which is non-transphobic content. The same, see, two sides of the same coin. Mm. It's like, ah, that is amorality, right? Right, because again, we're talking about, it's this key idea, I think, the theme of today's podcast is this idea of like presenting things as being equal positions. Yeah. It's like climate change, right? They present not doing something about climate change as equal to doing something about climate change, as opposed to what it probably should be is that climate change is the starting position and then the things that we're balancing up is do we go in this direction or we do do we do this about it? But like the idea that those two things are presented as equals, that 97% of the world's scientists, you know, tell you that climate change is man-made and here's how we can fix it and 3% don't, that you present those things as equal positions. And it feels, again, like... You're saying to somebody, yes, we have transphobic material. Like we've got, yeah, we've got some stuff that's pro-Nazis, but like we've got heaps of stuff that doesn't even say anything about Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? That's, that's, and, and, Don't we get credit for that? Exactly. And like, but like that was the CEO of Netflix. Like that was his statement. Yeah. You know? And it just kind of was like, wow. I thoroughly hope that we really rethink how much value and, uh, and morality and leadership we ascribe to um, corporations. And, you know, Netflix was thought of as the most, pro- like one of the more progressive ones, right? It's new, it's hip, it's whatever. Um, but it's also very easy to be progressive when everything is going fine. Yeah. Like when you're the market leader, when you're the main game in town, then it's very easy to also be cool, right? But the minute that your market share starts to go away, suddenly, you know, the Avengers aren't coming over to your house anymore and you can't get the Simpsons to return a call. And, you know, you suddenly realize that the parties at your house aren't quite as big as they used to be. And you look around and you say, well, who's still here and who can we keep hooking into this infrastructure? You've seen it with news organizations, mm-hmm. right? That's why news has gone hard right, because they see an audience that is easier to lock into what they still have. They're not, we're not for everyone anymore. We're for this audience that we think we can hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. I, you want me to be really cynical about this? Netflix would probably offer Hannah Gatsby a special to re- oh, rebuke, absolutely. you what? know, in, in light of all of this stuff because, like, they don't care. They're just like, okay, well, here's uh, Dave Chappelle and now here's Hannah Gatsby. And does anyone else have a – who's even more transphobic? Let's get them in as well. And it's, it's like it's a machine. Right. You, if you like this transphobic thing, here's some other transphobic things that you might also enjoy, right? Whereas Hannah – 
I mean, I think this is the one upside for Hannah out of this whole situation. Well, actually, the, one of the upsides is she's just handled herself impeccably. Like, the second upside is this will do nothing than solidify and grow her audience, right? Like, there is no – it's not like – like Dave and Hannah were on the side of the schoolyard and they were each picking from 20 people. Hannah's audience was already extremely distinct from Dave's audience. Like they don't have to choose a side, you know, it's not one or the other. And the people who like Hannah for what she stands for and the sort of comedy she makes are only going to like it more because, you know, it will actually solidify and grow her audiences. Now, will Netflix be cynical enough to go, well, this will be great for us. We'll release a new Hannah Gadsby special and hopefully – you know, um, Dave Chappelle will comment publicly about it and then it'll like everybody will be watching that and we'll pick sides. Yeah, absolutely they will. Of course they will. They might gussy it up in, you know, well, you're one of our stars and your specials have done very well here. And But there'd be a part of them that mm. would believe that and there'd be a part of them that would believe this is nothing but upside for us. Yeah, this is what I'm saying about like it, you know, it, it seems like the old kind of cliche, but like, the bottom line is green, you know. The bottom line is 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 whether something works for a corporation financially. Are they able to make money off of this? Sure. Um, yeah, I just I I don't I'm, I don't trust corporations. <laughs> <laughs> They're people, Jan Fran. The bottom line, people and like I don't you and trust I. Posturing, I don't like it. I don't like performance. Um, and I think again, what we were talking about an audience, will like. The difference between bringing an audience into something, right? It changes the dynamic of whatever it is that you are doing. And now everyone has an audience. And so conversations are not linear. Conversations involve more than just two people because everyone has a platform. So there is whether you like it or not and whether you manage it well or not. And some people do and some people don't. And some people are unaware of it and some people are acutely aware of it. But there is a necessarily a, a necessary element of performance that comes in, right? And I don't mean this cynically necessarily. I just sort of mean it matter-of-factly because you are suddenly before an audience, right, rather than just having a discussion with you and one other person. Um, and so with that comes a lot of scope for performance uh, allegiance and performance solidarity and per- because as a way not so much of saying you know I am not uh, you know not, not so much as a way of saying like um, this is what I believe in or this is who I'm going to support it's just a, it's kind of a branding exercise for people and I can't get on board that I just can't I fucking hate it so do you then feel like because okay so this is interesting to me because I recently, my management, because I'm going to go back and try to do a tour next year, and of course the world's changed a fair bit, and my management sent me a little, you know, document around social media and, you know, how important social media is these days to, you know, being able to sell tickets and let people know that you have things on and all these sort of things. And it was a proper thing that they've commissioned someone to write, you know, like a whole, like a presentation, like, you know, slides and all those sort of things about what it is that I'm doing badly or well or that I, you know, could be doing better or how I could, what, which one of my posts, you know, respond well versus other one of my posts that respond well and all these sort of things. And the truth of it is that I have been running absolutely dead on social media for like at least a couple of years, like, 
I have not been like all I've been doing is really just sharing other people's stuff and plugging other things that I've made in other forums but I just haven't been involved in the game of it I haven't been posting specific stuff for it I've been observing what's been going on but not you know kind of getting engaged with what has been going on and I have loved it so I'm currently at a crossroads where like for the sake of my career continuing to evolve and doing things that I want to do versus how I actually feel about these things which is that I don't want to be involved in those debates or having to performatively stake your flag in everything and have an opinion about everything and like like I think it's a nicer world when you don't have to do that where you can define yourself a little through the people who see you every day and the friends and family of yours and maybe work colleagues or whatever but the people who actually you see and matter to you as opposed to this vast uncontrollable you know ocean of audience that needs to be serviced in ways that you're not like you know talk about that idea of saving your best for other people it's you know it's one of those things that i don't want to do i don't want to save my best for other people i want to save my best for the people who depend on me the most and love me the most yes 100 percent. will will you okay Okay. i don't know who sent you the slideshow okay but if you want to put them in touch with me you can will you have built i'm sure you don't need to hear this you've done the work mate you've built a name and a reputation and a career you don't need to engage on social media to let people know who you are and where you stand. You don't need to do it. You do not need to do it. People know who you are. I don't need to take are. half an hour a week to respond to messages no, from people on social show. media. They know who you are. Yeah. There is a poster. But the that document I'd- said, Jan, that I had to do that. Jesus Christ, if Will Anderson do, has to work the socials, we're all fucked. Do, do I have to go on TikTok? Because it's been recommended that I have I to go on TikTok. And I don't want to go, go on, on TikTok. TikTok. I don't want to, Jan. I don't want to go on TikTok. Even if you wanted at this point to go on TikTok. Please, I hope that's the case. (laughs) There'd be nothing better than to be able to write back to this document and say, sorry, it's not legal for me to be on TikTok. (laughs) No, man. I just, I think, you know, everything's a state of flow. Things start and things end and there's rebirth. Like, you can't just, you've got to, yeah, it's... I, I, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. And and I, this is, I'm not shading. I'm tr- well, I'm trying not to shade. I have, a, I have a lot of issues with social media, but again, they're just all sort of percolating in my mind and like not hugely articulate. They're like little disparate thought bubbles. But one of the things that I hate the most about social media is that I believe, and, and it's, it's sort of internet in general, um, one of the things that I'm realizing more and more about it is that it has fundamentally eroded what I think is one of the most important and sacred aspects of being a human being, which I know sounds dramatic, but it is true. It's eroded my ability to be present. And I can't have that. I cannot have this. This is no good. And it's, it's fledgling right now. So it's sort of at, this, at the beginning where I've kind of clocked it. I can't, 
I can't have this existence where because all I ever try and do is cultivate that ability, right? Like that's that's it. That's what I'm trying to do in this life, man, is just cultivate my ability to be present. And the one thing that I have perceived to be the greatest threat to that ability is social media. So you see where I'm uh, I'm opposed to it existentially. Well, because talk about armies that are like I mean some of the world's worst people you know, came up with companies now that control the way that we think about the world and how engaged we are in these things. And it's almost impossible to believe that we can manage it in a healthy way because the internet is not a healthy place. Like, you know, as Bo Burnham you know, says, there's a little, you know, a little bit of everything all of the time. Like everything that you want is like available. So you can never finish. You can never be like, once you get on there, you can't, ever finish it it's not like even binging a tv show where you can actually get to the end and it's over like it's it's you have to choose to step away from it and revalue other things in your life but there is an element of that then you just fear of being left behind because is that the future is that the future regardless like it doesn't matter if i step away everybody else is still going to be on TikTok. It, like they, they were doing fine without me there and they're not going to miss me when I don't join up. Like, do I just become an old irrelevant person going, you should read a book. Something that I can't even do myself because I'm too busy reading fucking Twitter. <laughs> um, there is that risk. Yeah. There's, there's the risk that, I mean, this is, this is why we're so inextricably linked from it is because it permeates every aspect of our existence, Right. Um, there's, uh, there's no doubt in the world that social media has been very helpful to my career. Uh, like I, I, I wouldn't deny that. Um, and there's certain things that you are risking from stepping away. And one is, you know, not being, uh, as, as present publicly, uh, perhaps not being as relevant, um, not being as available, um, which are all things that, you know, um, if somebody is wanting to offer you a job, whatever that job might be, they're going to look for the first person they see. They're going to look for your work, which is public. They're going to look for, you know, the ways that you've kind of um, presented yourself um, and usually how you've done that on your own platforms. So there is definitely a risk. Um, but what's the risk in staying? <laughs> right. Right. Like for me, this, that shit's small fry, man, compared to the erosion of your ability to be a present human being. Like what is more important than that? Truly, uh, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that, is, that is for me like the center, the axis upon which your, my, 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 I would like my life and my world to, to turn, right? That is the center. This thing is fucking the center. Like it's gotten into the nerve center. Yeah, that's my, and I don't have a problem with meditation. I quite like meditation, but I've never gone fully like, you know, full board meditation because the truth of it is that I see so many people who meditate in the morning and then spend 18 hours on Twitter, right? Or Instagram, you know, like to me, I don't want yeah. that. I don't need something that is like a cleanse from, you know, the I want to readjust my world so that I'm constantly <laughs> meditating. Like I want to be in one of the things I've tried to do with work, like when one of the things about, you know, working remotely is that I try to be super present during meetings in a way that 
I perhaps if I'm there in the room, you know, uh, more liable to muck around or like, you know, just get distracted or like get my phone out and flick through Twitter when like something boring is happening or whatever. Whereas like when I'm in these meetings, I'm just like, okay, well, you've got to have that meeting for an hour. And if you actually have a good meeting, you won't have to worry about the thing for the rest of the day. Like just be more present. Right. But it involves because I'm sitting at my computer constantly just behind the screen is a little bit of everything all of the time. And the amount of time still that I have like halfway through when something's got a little bit boring, found myself reaching to just go, I'll just see what like Twitter's saying or I'll just check the news or whatever. Like it's just so hard to not do it. Yeah. There's there's also kind of like in in addition to what – because what what being present is means that you're not thinking about the future Mm. or the past, right, necessarily. You're not letting the past define you. You're not – um, uh, thinking that either your fulfillment or your detriment lies somewhere in the future. So it's it's being able to kind of centre in what is happening at the, in the now, which is a way of alleviating suffering, not to get like too <laughs> existential, but that's kind of like the, the basis of it. But with, you know, social media, it's because it's so intrusive and I've got all notifications mm. turned off, mind you, but it still remains kind of intrusive in my head. It's like, oh, suddenly you're aware of this email that needs to address this particular issue. And you think, okay, well, if I can just reply to this email now, then it's kind of done. So what happens is this thought about this thing in the future has has permeated this moment, right? But that happens a hundred times a day. Because one of those times is fine. You can deal with it one time and it's fine. But that is all it is. And suddenly you're watching people, you know, flog some bullshit or you're watching people, uh, you know, talk about something that if you hadn't seen, you'd be completely fine and would never think about it again. But now this thing is sitting in your head, this thought or this idea or this thing that you've seen, and it could be as innocuous as someone eating something on the internet. Now that is in your brain space. It's it's a problem and maybe I just don't know how to uh, handle it properly. I don't think I'm alone because I think more and more people are, you know, cottoning onto this and talking about it and, you know, there's books written about it and, and thinkers musing on it. Um, and maybe I just haven't worked out a way to use it um, in a way that, that benefits rather than that hinders me. Maybe other other people have and good for them. Well, I think part part of the problem is that we're just starting to have this conversation, whereas like social media has got a 15-year head start, right? Like they've been looking at ways to hook us into their infrastructure for so long. Like the amount of like newspapers and stuff, like online newspapers that I assume I have passwords for because I pay for my media, but... If my Facebook, there was one day when Facebook went down and I was like, oh, well, I guess I don't know how to read newspapers today because I don't know how to log into these. Like they all say log in through Facebook, right? Like, I don't know. Like they hook you into the infrastructure of it so much that it's very hard to dismantle also. And they're having conversations every day with like the world's best psychologists. I read, I think there was more psychologists working for you know, um, internet companies now than there are in the rest of the wild or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, these are people who are professionally trying to work out how to hook us into their world in whatever way it might be. And we are just lone soldiers, like with a 15-year, like, you know, the head start of them already that we're trying to work it out by ourselves. It's Maybe it is impossible. Like, I mean, I think that, 
you know, there is an element of going, the only way that I can control this is me that's, deciding yeah. what I need from it. Yeah. I think that's, that's the probably pragmatism. it, right? Like what what do I need from it? Let's let's stop thinking of this as an equal relationship because it is not. This is the one time this is your you work for a boss you don't like, but they let you steal the stationery and there's good snacks when someone has a birthday or whatever. That's what this is. Go in, get your paycheck. Like, get whatever is coming to you and fuck off home to your family. Like, that is what social media should be, I think. And, like, for some people, it'll be much more than that if that's, like, what you choose it to be. Like, you know, as in you might say, no, actually, this is my world and this is where my audience is and this is where I connect to people. Like, and I'm in control of that and it is a positive thing for me. But I I just don't think – for me – I think at the moment we're all treating it like, oh, no, you just have a go at it. Do whatever you want. I mean, I think there's It'll this aspect fine. of it that has allowed a platform for people who would have otherwise not had a platform, and especially, yeah, and I, I think so. the benefits of that aren't to be discounted. I think that's that's been really important. It's also come at a cost to those people, which is any time that someone speaks up about something that is, you know, pertaining to a particular identity or a particular right. side of politics or, you know, have an opinion about a hot-button culture war topics. It's like the trolling is – that's just par for the course now, you know. Since when Since when was that a thing that is just like, oh, cool, I'm just going to get a deluge of being told that I'm a dumb bitch? Like, since when was that just the thing that happens? Well, you have to – that comes with it. It's the internet. Yeah, I mean, it just – Like we never had that discussion as a society, I don't think. I mean, in fact, if we did have it, we then have I missed shit. it where we said, We'd- hey, do you reckon okay, – hey, we're going we're to fundamentally change the way we communicate as human beings. Um, this is our industrial revolution. Like look around, nothing will ever be the same again for better or for worse. So let's decide how much of it can be better and how much of it's going to be worse. Like – it's fundamentally changed everything. I mean, particularly like if you just even look at inequality, the people who are billionaires now have all made their fortunes mostly now in like this space. Like, so it's had an overall effect on the way society is arranged as well as the, and yet we don't have a whole bunch of conversations around anything much more than like what you can ban or not yeah. ban on the internet. That's about as close to having a decent conversation around as we have or how much screen time you should allow your kids. I, I guess that's the other place where people have these conversations more seriously. But as adults, I think, I, I think when do we have them? When do two adults talk to each other about going, like if my mate's drinking too much or gambling too much, I'm probably saying to him, hey, man, are you cool? Is like everything all right? But I never ask any of my friends how much time they're spending on the internet. And you could argue... Like some of it becomes apparent, like when you suddenly one of your friends is full QAnon or whatever, and you're like, okay, well, you spent a lot of time on the internet and it has not been good for you. I wish I'd known you'd been spending that much time on the internet and maybe Mm. I could have called you occasionally and you could have had a conversation with me instead of like watching that YouTube video and maybe things would be a little Mm. better between us right now. I mean, Facebook was made by Mark Zuckerberg to rate hot girls at Harvard, babe. Mm. Like I don't think he knew Mm. what the fuck he was making. When he made it in 2004. He no. didn't. And now we've gone, you can be in charge of the <laughs> next evolution of society. If like, if this metaverse that he's claiming he's going to like create, like, hang on, are we letting that guy? We, he, was, he started it for dodgy reasons. 
He's proved that like there's been nothing but dodgy shit going on pretty much continuously the whole time it's been going on. Like, I mean, this is all documented stuff. Like, this is not, you know, this is a guy who's in front of Senate inquiries who there's been a myriad of scandals over privacy and data and tracking and all these sort of things. Like, they're documented. You can read about them. This is not hyperbole. And we're like, okay, but you can still keep being in charge of like the way that we interact with each other in a meaningful way in a society. It's like, yeah, not just makes no charge, sense. But it's like, it's, you know, because like, as you say, Facebook has been riddled by scandal. And so they've decided, okay, when you're under pressure, there's a scandal, just change your name. There you go. That's, mm. that's all. Just give, it, just give the, the house whose foundations are crumbling a nice lick of paint and we'll be right. But not only did they do that, they've decided that they're going to fucking expand what they do. So not only have they permeated yeah. your, your ways of interacting with people that you know, with people that you don't know, not only have they permeated the news and the media, not only have they permeated businesses because now small businesses require them for advertising, um, not only have they permeated the community group and, and buying and selling on places like Marketplace, they've permeated every single aspect of your life and now they want to do it in 3D forever. No, thanks. How do I get off this train? Because this isn't the train I signed up to. Like, I thought I was just going one step down the road, man. And now I'm still on the train. And I don't know how to get off it. Now we get to the bit where I really wrestle with, which is this. So if all these things are true, which I believe them to be, which is that you know, too much time on social media is unhealthy. It is an unhealthy relationship. They get much more out of us than we get out of them in return. And is there a way that you can do it? Absolutely. But I think that at the moment they are set up to hook us in and make us spend more time there than we possibly need to. And a lot of that is through our worst impulses. It is them inflaming the worst impulses of who we are to get us to stay there more. What they've decided, what they've you know, worked out is if there's like a monkey fight in the corner, we're more likely to hang around in the bar, right? So they're getting us to stay by feeding our worst impulses. If I know that is true and I know everything that I know about Facebook, what's my moral responsibility when I'm sending people to Facebook? Like if I'm saying to somebody, hey, I've got this like new stand-up video clip, go and see it on my Facebook page. What, where's what's the moral stance on that? Am I just perpetuating this machine that I understand to be no good, or is that like a a nil sum game where it's just like you know what will the world's going on regardless if you want to go in and people can choose to be on Facebook or not choose to be on Facebook? Is there is that a moral should I, is there an ethical or moral question there that I should be asking myself, or is that overstating the case? I mean, if you really want to be ethical about it, you'd get off all of social media at once immediately forever there you go that solved your ethical dilemma the problem is that that has created a whole bunch of new dilemmas for you which is an inability to work um, an inability to connect with your colleagues and with people an inability to do something as simple as you know set up a dinner date with a bunch of friends or whatever it is right so it has suddenly impeded all of these other aspects of your life so in some way, we know this thing to be uh, – it's like they take um, 12 in one hand and give you just one back in the other mm. and we have to be happy with that one because that one is so beneficial to us. We know ethically that's a conundrum because of how much is being taken from us 
but we cannot, we're not in a place to be able to resist that one, if that makes sense. That was a slightly convoluted metaphor. But it's like, I don't blame people for being on these platforms. I'm on these platforms. I don't blame me for being on these platforms because I understand the benefit um, to my career and to my life. Um, but I'm also increasingly understanding the harm and it appears that the more I understand, the more I start to understand that the harm is outweighing the benefits. So I think if you want to be ethical, um, you just have to kind of just lead, I don't know, lead by example. That sounds so trite. Lead by example. I mean, there's a harm minimization scheme is what I'm hearing. Like, you know, that you can yeah. feel like, am I balancing out the harm by the good that is done here? Right. So that means, I mean, because one of the things that I'd miss if I got off Twitter is like, I, I like seeing what other people say and whatever. And I absolutely, it's introduced me to a whole bunch of voices that I never would have heard from. Yeah. And I think that's broad in my experience. But the thing that I would miss also is my capacity to plug like a younger comedian show or like their podcast or whatever it is. Like, you know, if I do that for one of them, like there will be a few people who go and give it a listen or, you know, check out their show or whatever. And it feels like, to me, I'm always like, oh, well, that's a good thing that I like about Twitter is that if if it's that alone, like, you know, and so for me, I feel like there's some harm minimization there, right? Like I'm doing some good while I'm here that maybe outweighs the harm. I don't do as much good on Facebook, I, I will say. I feel like I need to up my game to do some more good on Facebook. Like at the moment, I reckon Facebook's winning. <laughs> Why? What do you do on there? Uh, the, the least I possibly can. But what I've noticed is, and you'd understand this too, is um, anti-vaxxers not particularly fond of me at the moment. And uh, they'll love this podcast. <laughs> so, um, oh, shit. And, you know, and that's fine. And I live in a community of anti-vaxxers. And so, obviously, you know, some people are mad at me and they decide that they will just comment about vaccines on any post or whatever it is that I put up on Facebook. So mostly I just go, hey, here's a clip from Guru and here's a clip from the podcast and that's pretty much the only interaction. But I don't turn off the comments and then sometimes if I do check back in, it's mostly people arguing about vaccines. So I would say that is yeah. like my Facebook is not contributing in a positive way to the world is what I would say. And so is there a concern for you? Like, why don't you just shut it down? I mean, I don't think my counter to this document that I got from my management should be to shut down one of the pre-existing <laughs> social medias. I feel like that is an overreach. That's too bold a counter. I just want to stay off TikTok. That's all. I just don't want to have to be on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you can do that. I think you can stay off TikTok. I think there needs to be like, okay, there needs to be some level of government intervention here and government regulation. I, I, I really, I cannot see another way. These platforms are massive. They've permeated our lives in ways that we still don't understand. And then in addition to that, you know, we need to be equipped with the tools to decide how we are going to use these platforms and in what ways they are going to benefit more than cause harm to us. So it sort of has to be this kind of dual, you know, attacking of the situation. I don't think it's just an individual rights and responsibility thing. I think it goes much bigger than the individual. But I think as individuals, if you're not being a cunt online, that's a good start. Good place to finish. Thanks for this <laughs> chat. Nice to chat to you, Jan Fram. Pleasure. Uh, people can listen to the briefing 
he comes out every day. Well, not every day. He comes out like five days a week on Saturday, right? Like there's a Saturday special. That's right. And yeah. um, The Proge, of course. You can catch you on The Proge. Catch me on The Proge on Sundays. And listen to The Briefing every other day. Um, thank you very much, Jan Fram. No worries. 